0: We're live from South by Southwest or (laughs) H B C U S Southwest. <laughs> Got to give a shameless plug on the podcast. Of course. I'm stadium. Rodney. Uh, yeah, yeah, no shame. I'm Rodney Sampson, Executive Chairman and CEO of Opportunity Hub. So excited to be here uh, with our collaborative buds and friends at Living Cities. And yeah. also some amazing investors, some new investors, yes. some OG investors, and some <laughs> global institutional investors. And we're going to have uh, just a very laid-back conversation about a very serious topic, though, and that topic is around ensuring that everybody, but particular people of color, have access to early-stage capital to grow their businesses, to grow their ecosystems so that they can scale and create wealth i think to kick us off i think it will be good for you all to give some context on what you're doing at living cities particularly as it relates to the builders and benefactors and then once you do that i'll have everyone introduce themselves Uh,
1: so i'm dimitric Duckett, the associate director for capital innovation at living cities Uh, one of the things that we think we can bring particular light to is what happens with entrepreneurs of color within the whole notion of income and wealth generation. Why aren't we seeing better outcomes in certain spaces for founders of color? And then it sort of made us ask, well, what about fund managers of color? So we convened uh, roughly 24 folks who touched the private equity and venture capital space, all people of color, Uh, with varying sort of aspects of, you know, outcomes and expertise uh, in Vegas for two days to literally talk about their lens on this space in the private equity venture capital world and what we as Living Cities, as philanthropy, might be able to do to support and create proof points that might eventually shift the marketplace for all the folks in that world.
2: So Janae Queen Nazir, I am the Managing Director for Performance and Results at Living Cities, and what's cool is I get to be the person to do the convening. Um, (laughs) That is my role, is to have the conversations, to do the research, to help us set up what the questions that we need to ask um, to get the, 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 the information we need. How do we disrupt the terms? that actually are you know are often barriers for people of color, fund managers of color, entrepreneurs of color trying to get access to capital. How do we support the local ecosystems so that like people just have um, uh, a community of support around them um, that, com- that comes with dollars <laughs> and policies that support it. And then, third, how do we actually start to change who's in the seat with um, who's in the seat of power or access to those resources?
3: My name is Tiffany Moore. I'm with the Consumer Technology Association, and we actually own and produce CES, which is a amazing uh, show in Las Vegas every year in January that showcases the best innovation that the world. Uh, offers and that can make. And we wanted to make sure that the entrepreneur, the startup, felt that they had a place at CES. And so we have an area called Eureka Park. Uh, There's a booth about the size of a 12-foot table where they can showcase what their app or their innovation or whatever it is that they've made. And part of that, we have programming around it. uh, It's the startup stage. And so we have a lot of conversations around uh, kind of venture capital and making sure that these companies who are, in some cases, spending their last dollars to get to Vegas to showcase at CES, Mm -hmm. that they're having uh, those conversations and networks with uh, VCs. And so that is CES, and a lot of what we do is advance pro-innovation policies on the Hill and within the administration to make sure uh, that you know those who want to innovate and create that they
4: have uh, the ability to do so. Uh, Brandon Andrews. Uh, I do help run a firm in D.C. called Values Partnerships. Um, We're a social impact agency. We help our partners connect with diverse audiences and also audiences of faith. And uh, one of those partners is ABC Shark Tank, and we do run a nationwide casting tour for the show focused on finding more diverse ideas so making sure that every sector of the economy and type of business is included not just consumer products on the show but also making sure that the diversity in the audience at home is reflected uh, both in the entrepreneurs pitching but also in the investors um, that are doing the investing to show that we have that potential as well and so I intentionally go to Coworking working spaces that are owned by women or owned by um, African-Americans in communities that Shark Tank and big brands don't often go to. So communities like Southeast Washington, D.C. and like South Bronx and like Inglewood in California and L.A. where we'll be on March 26th of, of this year. Um, intentionally, hopefully injecting hope and capital into those local ecosystems. Again, in addition to um, giving the entrepreneurs the opportunity to be on the show Really excited to be a part of the conversation and looking forward to seeing what uh, happens, you know, after this as well.
0: You know, this is this is truly a full circle moment. I just actually remembered it. I actually came to South by the first time when we did an official South by Shark Tank casting call mm-hmm. six years ago oh. Oh, wow. oh wow that's how I got to South by and then they wanted to have Shark Tank so bad they gave me an award too and I went back <laughs> and <laughs> <started laughs> negotiated with clay and the team at the time mm-hmm. like we got to do South by mm-hmm. and that's how we got there so we've wow. we come full circle um, in, in being here but I'll lay out some context in terms of our conversation mm-hmm. today So, wow, 20 years ago, I was that founder with an idea, technology founder. Four companies, two Xs, hardest 10 years of my life, burnout after that and said, okay, I gotta do something better and smarter. And I said, okay, I gotta start investing. And then I realized there were gaps because I was in my outlier space. In my outlier space, When your head's down, a lot of founders we see around South by, they're new to this game. And I look at them and say, think about the long game. Right now, you close the C round, you close the Series A round, but it can't be just about you. But when you get that tunnel vision, you're only thinking about your success in the moment. And you're like, once I win, then I'm going to put everybody else on. Mm -hmm. And I just think there are new models to that. And so now I'm really trying to figure out how to hack capital formation at scale where – we don't just have to have outliers in terms of black fund managers and founders or investors, you know, that are having that connection. So with this convening, I like that to sort of be like the thesis of what we hack. And so my first question for you, Tiffany, which is why I'm really excited about you being here with us today, is your organization is a cutting edge you, you do a cutting-edge event, but you're a very traditional trade organization. We are. We are. And the fact that you have actually launched a venture fund where the investment thesis is in and around investing in fund managers and founders of color. Could you tell us more about
3: Yes. And that? and talk about, like, exciting. So kind of uh, for those listening, at CES 2019, our CEO – and. Just to kind of help you understand, the, the CES, uh, the show, we do lots of keynotes, and that stage is where you, you spend weeks and, and months kind of planning for what you're going to say and what you're going to do. And one of the things that our CEO uh, that heads up CTA, the Consumer Technology Association, and CES did is he used that show floor to announce that CTA would invest $10 million in funds that support women and diverse entrepreneurs, and those that support and invest in diverse leadership teams. Because as he knows uh, and believes wholeheartedly, is if you have more women and people of color at the table, you make better decisions, you innovate better. So diverse teams are incredibly important. And at CES, we very much want to make sure that startups and entrepreneurs have a place at CES. And we want to make sure that those entrepreneurs represent the best talent, the best ideas, uh, and making sure that they get funds. And I think we've all heard the the stats about how particularly women entrepreneurs get 2% of venture funding. And uh, you can only imagine for people of color. And so our kind of idea, which was uh, inspired from him and our board, they said, why don't we uh, step forward? Why don't we uh you know, we invest a lot as an association, but why don't we think about how we invest? And so this was a huge and incredible kind of game changer for us and yes. and talk, you know, and it came straight from our leadership to say, you know, how can we make a difference? And so uh, the response that we received was overwhelming. Uh, and right now we're kind of going through all of those. <laughs> like, yes, Welcome it is. I know, <laughs> but it's exciting. Uh, you know what, the thing that... that um, it was announced at CES in January and immediately I started getting emails and I was getting emails from startups who were talking about their ideas. And we're not investing directly in the startups, but right. like the the hunger, the excitement um, is there of, of, of people who want to make a difference. They are creating. They just need someone to invest in them. And so that was kind that was very uh, it was very warming to know that we were playing such an important role. So now we have to do the, the work and the investing, and that's what we're excited that we're in the process of doing
0: now. That's good. You, you alluded to your investment thesis uh, a little bit, but talk a little bit more why you chose to invest in fund managers mm-hmm. versus Founders specifically,
3: so we are a trade association. We represent more than two thousand companies, and uh, one, we are not. We are trade associ- we are traditional trade sure. association. So that's what we do every day. We okay. advance policies on Capitol Hill and in Washington D.C. and state capitals uh, to make sure that you know innovation friendly legislation and regulations are put forth and uh, and signed into law. And we do an incredible mm-hmm. amount of research. And we're a standard setting organization. We are not. Uh, we are not. Uh, funds. We are not a venture firm, sure. and so we thought it would be important to kind of stay, step, take a step back. But we also recognize we don't want to invest in the competition of our member companies. Right. So we thought it would be better to kind of, you know, step back. And again, I think we talked a little bit sure. before we got got on air about, you know, the importance of partners. And so, you know, we're all about working with people. Who know how to do things well, and so we knew that there was a community of venture uh, venture firms and funds who were doing just that, and so we wanted to have them as partners uh, to work on that. Who are you know focused, if not you know 90 percent on women and diverse founders, sure. and making sure that they're investing in those uh, those startups.
0: That's, I mean, you talk about you know game changing, you know, like that precedence. I think it was a Duke study. And uh, I talked a little bit about this earlier that came out that said without transformative change and disruptive policies, people of color are just not going like nothing will solve the racial wealth gap. And it's like it was daunting. It's like, well, let's just do something disruptive. Right. Let's to be transformative. Like that's not too hard to do. Well, might be so. But the fact that, like you say, a very traditional trade association. It was interesting. I mean, candidly. Mm -hmm. Whether you were planting seeds or not, it was mm-hmm. like, you said, like, it wasn't a pool. Like No. The CEO was inspired. Was inspired. You uh, know, our CEO, Gary yeah. Shapiro, like,
3: you know, we have incredible leaders on our volunteer board. And we, you know, incredible entrepreneurs, uh, tech executives, VCs all who are kind of part of the broader okay. tech ecosystem. And it kind of bubbled up from that, from our volunteer leadership board, that this is something we should do. And, again, it wasn't something where they have to be, had to be pulled into it. They were inspired to do it. Yes. And so, you know, if anything, I get folks that say, hey, how's it going? What's the set?" Like people are eager to kind of get across that finish line and, you know, actually have our investments working to support women and diverse entrepreneurs.
0: Excellent. Brandon, I want to come to you you know, you are literally talking to thousands of entrepreneurs. I think, I mean, back when I was working on the show, 250,000 entrepreneurs were applying. Are you seeing the venture backable ones that honestly, if they only had a
4: check, it would help accelerate them? So yes, the short answer is yes. Uh, But the caveat is it's never just a check. So right. you talk about sure. ecosystems, we have to make sure that we are not only funding the entrepreneurs, but also putting the structure around the Absolutely. around them in terms of the ecosystem to make sure that there's enough density there to, to, so, they, so they have peers to be able to lean on and also um, making sure that they have the mentorship necessary to get through the process. Um, as you mentioned, this entire process Um, of venture capital, of investing um, is completely foreign to most people. And one of the great things about Shark Tank is that it has uh, socialized the idea of building a business and building a venture-backed business in a different way um, because, you know, for most of the history of the United States, if you weren't an accredited investor, which is, you know, 2 to 3 percent of the population, Mm -hmm. you legally couldn't invest. That's right. And out of that two to three three percent it's only like five percent that are actually regularly that were actually regularly investing in companies and so a very small amount of people actually had any window into this world and so i think uh, part of the mission for shark tank and part of our mission here is education so we a lot of the conversation is going to focus on getting the resources into entrepreneurs hands and i can say unequivocally again, that there are entrepreneurs that have that spark, have that grit, have that uh, drive to build a company um, that's worthy of being venture backed, um, but need that capital in their hands early on. And uh, But they also need that mentorship and that education. Um, there's no shortage of them. And I'm excited about um, the opportunities represented at this table, but also about the growth that I've seen, because I can tell there's, there is a significant change in The number of resources and just the number of people that are interested in investing in this space or learning about this space versus when we first started doing the Shark Tank Casting uh, Diversity Tour. And I'm sure you've seen that change as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, just, you know, I guess the hindsight, um, just being able to look back and see. You know, first of all, 20 years ago, there was not a conversation in the startup world about diversity and inclusion. Of course, you were here when it came to supply diversity, Mm -hmm. government contracting, Mm -hmm. 8A. You know, those programs have, you know, been around, you know, since the late 60s, early 70s or what have you were really built out in the 80s. But when you start talking about, you know, the VC world and um the accelerators and the incubators and the pre-accelerators and the coding boot camps and you know all the stuff you know that we've been doing at opportunity hub and now when we see the other you know black ecosystem builders around the country what we know is that although tech conferences are great they're far in between it's hard to build every day when all you do is stay on a flight going to the next conference. At a certain point, you got to hunker down, you got to build somewhere. You got to be around other founders and entrepreneurs. when you look at what like Tony Shea is doing in Vegas mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and you look at Dan Gilbert in Detroit or Steve mm-hmm. Case in the DMV you know with Josh Bear here in Dallas there's no way we can compete we just we just can and so i think going forward to your point not only equally investing and in building the capacity of fund managers and founders but also ecosystem builders themselves and i think you know, ecosystem building organizations also require funding um, as, as as well. Uh, Dimitrik I'd like to have you jump into this conversation, particularly around just being able to get philanthropy to allow you all uh, to, um, you know, just venture into kind of this unknown space of even... A convening the conversation, mm-hmm. y'all feed very well, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and and then, and then and then right and then B actually having an investment thesis around racial equity. But at Living Cities, what does that mean to you all when you say we have an investment thesis around racial equity?
1: It means that we have a lot of scars and we still keep hope. Okay. Uh, anyone, you guys know philanthropy. I uh, often run around the country talking about. Uh, you know our perspective on philanthropy and what it can do, and I try to remind people of history that you know the first community foundation was started in 1914 it was the year after the 16th amendment was ratified finally levying permanently the personal income tax so i always joke guess what happened the next year tax deductions Um, and so that formed a lot of the foundations that we still know as household names right many of whom are our members you know we're made up of 18 foundations and financial institutions the largest in the world And so, as you can well imagine, if over 100 years of philanthropy has only yielded the social outcomes that we see today, that it's not just a matter of pushing a button or writing a smart phrase that gets them to do something different. So what we at Living Cities as a collaboration believe that our purpose uh, rests in is this notion that we get to go out and test and push and try and explore uh, in a way that no single member of ours normally could do or get away with or would even think they should be trying. And so we both, you know, it's like all other sort of efforts in the market. Some are pushed and some are pulled. Um, uh, we try to push where we can, and racial equity is certainly one of those things. Historically, uh, as with most people in this philanthropic space, we used to think, you know, we've got to help all low-income people. Like, you know, the poor people need us. And it was a broad construct, race neutral. You know, our CEO would tell you in his 30 years in nonprofit and philanthropic work, he really thought, you know, he was doing good work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one day he looked up and realized the needle hadn't moved on a number of things. And so we started doing what we do. And, you know, Janae will tell you about her work in pushing us around performance and results. And so we use data. Mm-hmm. So to your point, uh, we use data. And so if you break down in U.S. cities who are the low-income people, it's bizarre how you start to recognize how – not for us, but for many, how many of those people are people of color? And then when you look at the efforts that go out the door trying to support them, and you compare outcomes for what I think someone on the earlier panel called single-toned people uh, versus people of color you see a disparity. And so we thought, well, like any other consumer product, you know, if you're trying to like, get to market, you go after the biggest opportunity. Uh, and so the biggest opportunity in trying to help low-income people is to create a real focus on racial equity. Because then what it allows you to do is to tilt the tables in very specific ways in favor of those people, uh, as opposed to holding this notion of equality, recognizing that systemic and historic uh systems built on racism always continue to produce the same kind of outcomes for different people in different demographics so we're trying to change that and so we test it using our capital the way that we can Uh, you guys probably know we've raised two impact investing funds over time Uh, the first was just over 10 years ago roughly 38 million fully deployed and repayment Uh, we were in a very different mind space back then Uh, our last fund was raised just over two years ago roughly 38 million again it's a 10-year fund principally focused on debt and we lend through intermediaries so our goal here is to look for ways to help support movement for founders of color and fund managers of color in ways that the regular market isn't ready to do yet
0: do you think it's a model for the future and are
1: the foundations listening they are listening and i do think it's a model i mean we push and we prod.
2: yeah is there something i was gonna say so yeah i do think it's a model and some of it's just it's behavior change right Um, um, it's it's back to this notion of like what if we if we do a root cause analysis and we ask the question why are people not getting access to capital and like push at its deepest level then we can actually get to the root of the problem and solve it we don't go that deep in these in the in many of our spaces or our systems um and i so i would say yes it is a model i think the other thing that has been great about our investors is that They've got safe bets in many other places. And so coming together as a collaborative allows them to take a little bit more risk because we offer cover and we give them permission to sort of go a little further um, a little, and, and, and do a little bit more. And so there have been times where they've pushed us and said this is actually not risky enough. Oh, wow. Again, with philanthropic dollars, we have the I would luxury or privilege, or we sometimes take it as a luxury to take a few more risks than um, uh, other kinds of institutions might take so yeah so now they're they're open
0: good yeah Good. Tiffany what does success look for uh, you and CTA what does it look like for you all you know you know most funds a 10-year you know funds like 10-year mm-hmm. so down the road what is what would success look for you all with this fund
3: I think for us it'll be that uh, there are The innovation that we're going to see over 10 years, I mean, I I think it said, you know, nothing changes every two years, but then everything changes over 10 years. So Uh that in 10 Uh years, you would see a flourishing ecosystem of funded, uh, funded entrepreneurs and startups uh, that are headed by women and African-American people of color, like diverse founders. And that you would see an incredible amount of these companies. Uh, that are showcasing kind of what's next and that they're solving for a number of problems that that we face as a society broadly and that's kind of our overall thesis as a trade association is that technology can help solve Mm -hmm. problems. Uh, And, you know, we were having a conversation earlier around, you know, artificial intelligence or self-driving vehicles. Mm -hmm. Those have the capacity and the ability to solve challenges, whether it's, you know, social isolation, whether it's, you know, I, you know, I always continue to think that Uber was a game changer when it came to making sure that no matter what you look like, you could get you know, reliable transportation. Catching that New York (laughs) cab was... D.C. cab, too, was tough. Exactly. And so there are so (laughs) many things uh, that we can't even... that, that we can't even understand right. uh, but like you know I think of self-driving vehicles I think of you know caregiving and what technology mm-hmm. allows you to do when you're taking care of a, an aging parent which affects our population and our community very differently yeah. uh, and how technology will create some of those solutions and so those companies that have that I that have that idea uh, and they come from communities in which th- those challenges are different that they have the ability the capacity to um, to get funding
1: so Rodney, I would yeah. like to just share, I, I feel like when you talk about tech that way, mm-hmm. it reminds me of how I think about philanthropy and why in our work it's so incredibly important for us to keep putting racial equity at the center. Uh, the idea is that if you're, you know, if you're good people and you're doing good work, that like all kinds of people will benefit. But when you run the numbers and do the research, it starts to seem strange that somehow people of color end up on the other side, of some traumatic outcomes from some of that, mm-hmm. and I raise it because I just read a study on uh, artificial intelligence and the self-driving cars, and some group just did a study saying that uh, recognizing people of color is actually difficult in the models for the for the for the, yeah. for, the yeah. for the self-driving cars. And I thought, it,
0: it, we're, we're, the technology is yes. not being built to recognize, which is why. And, and I think it's strange. Yes. Like I look, I mean. I'm on lighter hue on some days, but I put. Sometimes I put my hand under that thing and it doesn't it dispense doesn't either, you. right? I mean, I'm kind of joking, but you're absolutely right. If the programmers have blinders, blind spots. yes, and they code, yeah. and then they teach the computers to scan what a human being looks like, and the computer scans millions of people that look one way. Yes, that's how we then get dehumanize inside of the actual text
1: and that's what society has done over time, yeah. right? As we've been taught racist constructs for years and years and years, there's a point at which we say, but this is based on merit. This is the meritocratic Farse process. Merit yeah, it's but all they that Within that process, yeah. everybody went to the two prep schools, right? Mm-hmm. Which means they yeah. don't normally look like us. And so I think it's fascinating that you have the work that you have with OHUB and that sure. you all you know, collectively support what it means to have more diverse people within the realm of yeah. tech and that's part of what we're looking to support. Because the same way we don't want self-driving cars running over people because they have darker hues, we also <laughs> don't want people being stuck in prisons and not getting education and not getting access to wealth building opportunities right. because they have darker hues. Yeah. And so if we let go of this notion of racial equity, we think it's very easy for us mm-hmm. to go back to the very erudite, polite uh, sense of philanthropy that will continue to perpetuate the things that are built into the technology of our social constructs.
2: And I think the thing I'll add is, and then it becomes about the people. What's wrong with them? And so that gets reinforced, and that's a whole, yeah.
3: Well, I, well, I will say, I mean, one of the things uh, we, I was just doing a program, uh, actually this week, at my days run together, uh, that focused on kind of HBCUs and how they are part of the solution uh, when we talk about building diverse talent at companies to make sure that when we're building these, uh, when we're building uh, these technologies that 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 is reflecting the best, and we've had this conversation at CES about AI and bias, and like that discussion is important to have. Uh, and in some ways, we serve at CES as a conveners as part of our conference sessions to talk about some of these issues to make sure that the you know you make better decisions, which that could, that could be algorithms, that could be business decisions, that could be marketing when you have diverse teams. And so we say you know particularly given HBCUs graduate the highest number of African American engineers that you know you don't get to a the best uh, tech workforce without HBCUs we've got almost
0: bit. you know 300 students here on the ground the majority of them yeah. are engineering students and they're not just in engineering majors we also select students based upon those who know, know modern-day languages so they're learning mm-hmm. Python which is a path to AI they're learning Java backend or Ruby on Rails or R mm-hmm. so they're learning the languages or they're going through coding boot camps to help supplement um, their, you know, their skills or, 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 what have you. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, with 300 students here, like, and we have a community of 4,000 around the country. Now they're starting to organize their own chapters and organize their, what they call solvathons mm. and hackathons mm-hmm. and, you know, just hacking it. Cause you know, another daunting statistic, which drives this work is we all love the innovation that, you know, we have access to. And we, even us sitting around this room, we don't even realize kind of the privilege we have Mm -hmm. to even, Mm -hmm. you know, be able to navigate the future of work. We're like, yeah, future of work. We we know we'll, you know, Mm -hmm. you can talk, you can sell, (laughs) you can put up with some ish. You're going to have a role somewhere (laughs) in something. But for people who are coming along, Mm -hmm. and so the Northwestern study suggested that innovation density actually perpetuates higher income segregation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it decreases economic mobility, and the mm-hmm. reason is whenever someone goes on Shark chain mm-hmm. and they're able to <clears throat> raise from a Mr. Wonderful, or raise from a short card or raise from a Mark Cuban or what have you, and they go back and hire ten people immediately. The school system didn't accelerate ten graduates mm-hmm. in thirty mm-hmm. days, or sixty mm-hmm. days in ninety days. And what happens is they we pull from our networks and we hire mm-hmm. very fast and we're not thinking about k-12 needs to be reinvented and higher ed needs to be reinvigorated and the curriculums all have yep. to be changed and and our friends and colleagues over there haven't been convinced yet and so that's why it's important mm-hmm. even with policy formation yep. and this work you're doing there's you know there as well but brandon i want to get a sense from you with all of the founders that you're working with and then you know being able to facilitate capital whether personally or through shark tank as well what does success look like for you in a decade when you you know look at the work you've been doing and the work that you're doing now
4: well first to the point that you were making dr martin luther king jr said the blind operation of the market system is going to lead to dislocations uh, and those dislocations are going to disproportionately affect people of color People that have been historically socio socioeconom- socioeconomically uh, depressed for whatever reason, and so I think in terms of what I want to do, it's marrying uh, my time in the world of venture and startup and entrepreneurship with to the point that you were making the policy side. So I spent several years working on Capitol Hill uh, in Washington D.C., which is where which is where I met Tiffany, and. Uh, I see over and over again, as I'm talking to founders, meeting founders, and thinking about the policy that has been passed over the past decade, um, intended to uh, invigorate startups um, to help founders, um, I see a disconnect very often and so uh, the first thing for me is getting as many folks into our pipeline for Shark Tank as possible, getting as many people on the show as possible, but then also i um, using the convening ability of the show to bring resources to those founders. So doing matchmaking, helping making sure that uh, VCs uh, and angel investing groups have deal flow that is as diverse as possible, pulling from um, this database that we've built. So that's the first step. The second is I I definitely would love to spend a season of my life just uh, putting resources into founders myself. And then I think the third thing is figuring out how to better address this disconnect between the innovation economy and um, the, the public policymaking process process uh in one in one case um, the policy making process just is, isn't quick enough to keep up with the innovation economy But secondly, um, if you look at the SBA, at minimum, the data that they're using is four years old because of their data collection practices. And if the SBA and other agencies and folks on Capitol Hill are using, at best, four-year-old data to make policy decisions um, around the innovation economy, then a lot of those proposals are just dead on arrival, no matter how well-intentioned they are and no matter how uh, much members of Congress or policymakers on the agency side actually care about I, again invigorating the innovation economy so for me it's getting as many resources into the hands of founders as possible and then figuring out how to fix this disconnect but which is something that tiffany's working on at cta a lot but something i would love to spend you know a little bit more time doing as well for farther on down the road
3: And Rodney, just to get back to your point about kind of the future work we at, at this table are at a different place your students sure. are at a different place but i always kind of think of you know you know when i think of my family i'm the fortunate you know, to be one of the first to go to college, but I have a, you know, I have an entire community of family that did not. And so what is their role kind of in this, in the tech sector? And I believe wholeheartedly there is a role. And so we are uh, rethinking kind of apprenticeships. We talk kind of a little bit about co-ops, but, you know, traditionally you think of apprenticeships as plumbing and elect, you know, electricians, but, you know, with training, you you know over 8 months or however you could become an, like a data analyst so there are some there's some jobs and it's and another organization that we had an opportunity to talk with put it so perfectly it's like how do we create another rung on the tech economic ladder that isn't I went to Howard or I went to you know a right. that you know what no I actually did a certification for eight months and I was able to get into a job Absolutely. right away it, you know and I actually earned while I learned so I was paid while I was learning and then I went into a job and so that's what we're kind of rethinking from a tech company perspective how do we create those opportunities that aren't just for the kind of you know those who were able to go to college but for those who haven't making sure that you know Know, if they're eager to learn and, and can learn the job you can do the job and also you see with a lot of tech companies now I don't want to take away from HBCUs because yeah, you all absolutely. are incredible yeah. amazing but you know I know uh, there's a move with some of our companies to say you don't have to have a college degree if you can do the job you get the job absolutely. and so just rethinking so that it's yeah. it's it's broad it's much broader sure uh, and it encompasses our entire community to your point to make mm-hmm. sure that that their individuals, that their opportunities, one, that the opportunities are there and that they can take advantage of no matter what their kind of, you know, educational level is.
1: Yeah. You remind me of how at Living Cities, we are always looking to um, bring cross-sector voices together to look at a challenge or a problem. Mm -hmm. So while we're here mostly talking about capital and capital formation, I really want to put like our impact investing and our Uh, determination to continually have funds at our disposal in the context so we believe in a cross-sector model for social change so the idea that public philanthropic and private sector partners along with community come together to look at a challenge and then determine what they think they need and then determine all kinds of measures and and so forth and so on and so for us as a people of color uh, looking at the future of work one of the things we're holding is what what do we think we need to be doing either within the system as it exists sure. or in a pure form of disruption in order to see better outcomes for us in terms of yeah. income and wealth. And so mm-hmm. education always sort of you know lives tangentially with a lot of the work that sure. we do, mm-hmm. but we never lose sight of it. To your point, Rodney, if no one's here to take the jobs, right. what's the point? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. can't have these conversations completely yeah. sort of you know you know separate and disaggregated. And yeah. we in philanthropy in philanthropy the way we are at living cities believe that we yeah. can add value to that
0: you sound like an ecosystem builder at heart. Yeah. You know, we, we're forced to think about so you know many different layers. this the the entire stack, right? Mm-hmm. And so even, you know, to your point, our outside of this program here, HBCU at South by Southwest, our longest standing program has literally been going to raise money from philanthropic and corporate sources to fund full tuition co- scholarships to go to coding boot camps. Mm-hmm. And that's been where we've had our workforce development programs, mm-hmm. people who may not have college degrees or may have an mm-hmm. associate's degree or maybe just got out of the system. We're going to wrap real quick. And I just right. got one final lightning 30 second question I want each of you you know, what's the one attribute that says, you know what, I want to talk to this person and I think I'm going to write a check if I can get over these hurdles. Brandon, we'll start with you and then we'll go.
4: Yeah, asking confidently and learning quickly. Biggest issue we have at Casting Calls is actually entrepreneurs either not asking for money or not asking for it in a confident way. And so when a founder comes to me and shows that um, they've put the work into figuring out valuation and also can ask confidently, then that signals to me that they're a person that's serious about growing their company and have the potential to You know, be venture-backed and bring a return. Excellent.
1: Um, I'm thinking of um, a female uh, VC player who used to be in a well-known organization and is now out building um, the you know the groundwork for her own fund. And if she's successful with reaching her number it will literally make history. And given her experience and expertise, in my mind, there's no reason she shouldn't be able to raise it. What we don't have available to us at Living Cities is the kind of tenor in our uh, capital stack uh, in order to be able to like support what she's trying to do uh, from an equity perspective. And so I want to keep following up because we do have our foundations and others around us exactly. that can invest that way. And so I want to bring whatever resources we can from our network uh, to see what really happens here. Excellent.
2: Um, I'm interested in the person who recognizes the demographic shift, uh, particularly the new majority, and they're thinking ahead about what are the um, types of capital that these folks are going to need in order to like start um, and grow businesses. So.
3: Uh, but I think you know, as we're kind of going down this new road, uh, we're looking for passion, intention, purpose, uh, and acumen and expertise. You know, someone who knows what they're doing,
0: but they have a sense of purpose of what they're trying to accomplish. Um, I love what Marlon and Troy have done with their first fund. Um, I invested as an LP in that fund. And now he's raising a $100 million fund with Charles King. Mm -hmm. And so his whole thesis of culture and tech is just amazing. And I think the attribute that Marlon has is... His no nonsense ability to close like he's a he's a quiet closer like i watch i watch him close me i'm like I be closed <laughs> <Okay. laughs> i'm like I gonna be closed bro when <laughs> <Are> you listen to <laughs> but like he's so laser focused but he's so diplomatic and cordial about it and it's like i get that and I, if other fund managers and founders had that kind of long game because Marlon's not thinking about closing LPs now. He's like getting you to invest in fund two and fund three, mm-hmm. and so that long game is is how I think. So, um, well, I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, this conversation because I know it's just not a conversation. <laughs> I know that there's a collaboration uh, that will come, you know, out of this in some form, shape, and form. I know we're gonna be at, we're gonna be at CES, yeah, you know, convening yes. there, yes, right. And uh, we're going to catch you on a shock Tank mm-hmm. casting call. And uh, and we look good. forward to seeing,
3: you know, everything that your students are doing here on the ground at South By while we're here
0: now. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look yeah. out for them. They've been me. so impressive today. Okay. Good. Really impressed
4: yesterday. <laughs> good. Very good. Very good. All right.
0: That's a wrap. Thanks. And thanks, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah.